Howdy. Okay, so in your programs, you should have a sheet for notes where you can, like, write stuff down, like, this woman is so boring. No, no, that would be negative. Don't want to write that down. <clears throat> and I, I didn't give you an outline, but I did give you the scriptures we'll be using because I find that's sometimes the hardest thing for me if I'm taking notes. And by the time I realize, oh, I think God wants me to look at that scripture again, the slide is gone, and, you know, it's like, so, so there they are. And <clears throat> time for my shameless plug. At the bottom of that list of scriptures, you will see a website address. And if you were to go to that website today, all you would get is a page that says, please sign up for updates. So there's no point going to that today. However, if you go to the website tomorrow, Yay! and we go to the next slide, It'll look something like this. And and the reason I'm shameless in, in promoting this is because I think it'll be really helpful for everyone, um, every Christian in San Antonio, not only encouraging you in your own walk, but also connecting you with what's going on in the rest of the body of Christ and giving you tools to be able to reach out to people you work with or people in your neighborhood, that sort of thing. And if you see in the top left where it says emails from Baghdad, well, I, I recruited this columnist that, that you might have heard of, Cindy McBride, and I thought her emails were so good that, that I got permission to use them as a column. And I'm hoping that other Christians who are overseas, either with the military or whatever, will start sending in their stuff because I think any time a Christian is in a non-Christian co country, they're a missionary, whether they're sponsored by a church or not. And we need to be praying for them, and it's good to know, you know what, what they're experiencing. So that's my shameless plug for transformsa.com. Um, and if it's if you go tomorrow and it's not up, please pray, because the last thing I heard was it will be up Monday or heads will roll. Yeah. Yes. I've been working on this website. Yeah. That yeah. This is what I've been pouring 20 hours a day into the last few weeks, and it started long before that. But anyway, not not all that important. Okay. So. We're going to talk about transformation. I know you thought we were going to talk about negativity, and we'll get to that, but transformation, the process of changing from one form into another, hence transformation, and that's the essence of every living thing. It's the essence of life is change, and if you're not evolving or changing, that might be something to worry about. Um, in fact, Mark Twain had something to say about that said, most men die at 27, we just bury them at 72. <laughs> and obviously, that's not literal. But the truth is, a lot of people I have known, by the time they were about 27, they were set in their ways. What they believed, what they valued, what they did, who they hung out with. That's right, say it isn't so. Say some of you aren't that way. And we shouldn't be, but that's the truth. That's the natural thing is to try to find something you're comfortable with and stay there. And we value comfort an awful lot in this culture. And um, not in my notes, but a little aside. Okay, if you feel pain, that's an indication something's wrong and you need to get to the dentist or the doctor or whatever. If you feel discomfort, that th that's not something to run away from. You need to look and say, why am I uncomfortable? And... I realize 90% it feels like it's somebody else's fault, 
but it's the other way around. 90% maybe you need to be more patient or you need to be more gracious or what have you. Not that God has had these conversations with me at all. <clears throat> well, let's, let's go to the next slide. I find this, this um, verse, Psalm fifty-five, nineteen, interesting. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And you almost want to say, okay, that must be a mistranslation. It's because they don't fear, that's why they don't change. But it's the other way around. You get so settled in your ways that everything's cool. No idea that maybe God's not exactly pleased. Because I have no intention of changing. So why should I even ask what God wants? And yet Psalm 37 says, The steps of the godly are directed by the Lord. He delights in every detail of their lives. He cares about every detail of my life and what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And as long as that's present to me, there's life. I don't know if you can tell in the picture. When I stop fearing God, being in awe of God, stop changing, then the process of death starts. Okay? Transformation means there's life. When there's no transformation, you're not alive. And I read something that explains this so well in Christian terms that I just figured I'd read it to you instead of trying to make it better myself. And the author's a lady who writes under the pen name Grandma Anna. And I can give you her website and stuff if you want it. I have not been able to figure out her full name. But she says, while earning my degree in psychology, I was studying basic behavior processes in my physiological psychology class. I was taught that what we see, hear, do, and think causes neurological pathways to grow in our brains by way of the synapses, axons, and dendrites. Thus, daily, we actually grow new connections through what we see, hear, do, and think. And I'm going to insert something. Whatever you say, you hear. So the things you're saying are growing new little connections in your brain as well. She goes on, once connections are made, they are not removed. Our old pathways remain in the brain regardless of the growth of new pathways and can be reactivated with the same original stimuli. In Christian terms, this would be called backsliding. Thus, backsliding is merely reactivating the old neurological connections. However, they can be circumvented by new ways of thinking or doing. While studying all this, suddenly the lights went on, and I immediately applied what I was learning to what the Word says about putting on the new man. Ephesians 4.24 says that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. I realized my old pathways could be circumvented by changing my behavior, by changing the things I thought about and changing the things I looked at. Contrarywise, if I was stimulating an old thought pattern that was contrary to the kingdom of God by watching something that the Holy Spirit considered evil or doing something against my conscience or dwelling on past wounds, it was bringing confusion to the new man that I was supposed to be putting on. The demons gained entrance through those open doors, and I had a fight on my hands. It was that simple. Our eye gates are one of the major ways we learn. We can do much to keep our eye gates pure. We can avoid reading ungodly material or viewing it or listening to it and instead fill our minds with God's word. Psalm 24, 3-5, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
And then she says, the word makes it very clear that the new man is put on through our participation. And she quotes Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, and it's a little long, but I'm going to go ahead and read it to you because it, it really sounds like a conversation. She has it under, out of the uh, New Living Translation. With the Lord's authority, let me say this. Live no longer as the ungodly do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their closed minds are full of darkness. They are far away from the life of God because they have shut their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They don't care anymore about right and wrong, and they have given themselves over to immoral ways. Their lives are filled with all kinds of impurity and greed. But that isn't what you were taught when you learned about Christ. Since you have heard all about him and have learned the truth that is in Jesus, throw off your old evil nature and your former way of life, which is rotten through and through, full of lust and deception. Instead, there must be a spiritual renewal, transformation, of your thoughts and attitudes. You must display a new nature because you are a new person created in God's likeness, righteous, holy, and true. So put away all falsehood and tell your neighbor the truth because we belong to each other. And don't sin by letting anger gain control over you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, stop stealing. Begin using your hands for honest work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he is the one who has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of malicious behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Do you get a sense of what we're supposed to be transformed into? Let me tell you a little bit about my own experience with transformation. And then we'll get to the heart of the matter, which is not about me, it's about us. When I was four, I was a little bright, precocious little girl. And if you were a spiritually sensitive person, you would have realized that I was born to tell stories, that that was part of the key to my destiny. And I remember a time, um, let me back up a little. In, in my culture, children were to be seen and not heard, except for when you were called on to entertain the adults. So it wasn't unusual for after a family dinner, you know, if we had company or something, for the children to be told, okay, now you sing or you play the piano or what have you, right? And so we lived in South America, and we would come up to the States to visit family at Christmas time. And this was Christmas when I was about four, maybe five or six, but I think I was four. And I, it was my, my turn finally to talk. I was the youngest by a long shot. There were no other kids for me to play with, so I had to sit and be quiet all the time. And now it was my turn to tell a story that I had read or seen. And go ahead to the next slide. And it was the story of the 12 dancing princesses, an old fairy tale. And the story is about 12 princesses that go to bed every night, and then in the morning their shoes are all worn out. So obviously they must have been out dancing all night, but nobody ever sees them leave the room. Okay, so that's, that's the fairy tale. I'm not going to get into that. But this is the story I'm about to tell the family. Well... I have an, uh, an uncle who all his life had a drinking problem. And when he'd been drinking, he was mean. And I don't mean like physically abusive, but the kind of mean where 
you're in a regular conversation and suddenly he asks you a question and next thing you know, he's made you look like a total fool. That kind of me. And he decided to pick on me and nobody saw fit to stop him from picking on a little four-year-old. So as I'm trying to tell the story, he says, you know, and the shoes were a big part of the story. He says, wow, all the shoes got worn out? What kind of garbage shoes did they get? Where did they get those shoes, Kmart? Well, I didn't know where they bought their shoes. And, and what color shoes were they? And what sizes? Did they have different sizes? Well, I didn't know how to answer these questions. So then he's getting to, well, I thought you were going to tell us a story. I thought you said you knew this story. Okay, you see where this is going. Well, I finally, you know, I didn't stop and cry and run away. I got mad because I was being bullied. And so I stopped. And fine, you're going to bully me, you don't get to hear the rest of the story. And nobody could make me tell the rest of the story. And then the night went on. And I didn't think much about this until about, I want to say, seven, eight years ago. We were having some training in our church on uh, dream interpretation and things like that. And I submitted a dream I had had. And it was interpreted, and I could tell the people were real nervous because they, they knew it had something to do with my childhood and thought it had something to do with maybe some kind of sexual abuse. And as soon as they started interpreting, I knew exactly what it was. It was that night at my uncle's house with that scene where I was trying to tell the story. And so I mentioned it to my mom. Of course, I'm an adult now. And I didn't think she would even remember. She wasn't particularly invested in my life at that time, but she remembered that. And she said, oh, I remember that night. She said, you were never the same. She said, you were such an energetic, vivacious, talkative little girl. And after that, you became reserved, and you wouldn't open up. And the only way I could get you to sing or play your guitar or something was to order you to do it. And so I learned to keep people at arm's distance. I mean, that wasn't the only occasion, obviously. But I learned, you know, and this might sound paranoid, but I believed anybody who got close to me would hurt me. And that sounds nuts unless you see the evidence. Every single person in my life who got close to me hurt me or left me. So it was pretty logical to believe that. And I wasn't a very big person, as you can tell. And so I learned to keep people away with my tongue. And so I had a highly developed sense of humor even then, and I became very sarcastic. And so by the time I was a teenager, if I met you, first time meeting you, I would say something kind of funny, but it was slicing, and you knew not to mess with me. Don't even think of bullying her, because I would chew you up, spit you out. I made that very clear from the moment you, you met me which didn't exactly make me very popular, but it kept people away where they wouldn't hurt me, you know, which was the whole objective. Well, then as a Christian, I learned that one is supposed to dwell on good things and believe good things about people and be nice to people and say kind, encouraging things and let people get close and all that. And so that was the transformation that had to happen. And I'm telling you, it would have been easier for me if someone had said, Mariana, us good Christians have blue skin. So every day you must dye your skin blue, and maybe after 40 years some of it will start to, you know, penetrate. It would have been easier to paint myself blue every morning than to go from where I had had been to becoming a person 
who allows intimacy and who encourages people and who isn't afraid of people and, and all that and who doesn't slice people up verbally. And that's, you know, it's a long process that continues. I'm by no means there, but I'm very different from the person I was. And what makes it really difficult is that we live in a very negative, sarcastic culture. People with my talent make lots of money working for Saturday Night Live or something like that. Okay. And, you know, I could show you some clips of TV shows and movies and even um, commercials that show how what we think is funny almost always has someone as the object of ridicule. But just watch it for yourself. And, and there are shows that are funny, they're well written, they're well acted. I wish I could watch them, but I can't because the people are so nasty to each other that I'm afraid it'll do what this lady was talking about. That'll be a stimulus that will get me back in my own old pattern, and that's how I'll start talking to people again. And I don't want to do that, so I just don't watch those shows. You know. um, same thing with certain kinds of music. Make me feel sorry for myself. Make me start rethinking about all the ways I've been wounded and who's done me wrong and all that. Well, I don't listen to those kind of songs. They're not helpful to me. And there's a certain book I want to tell you about as an example. And for those who've heard the story, I'm sorry. I'll make it short. Um, and there was, I won't get into all the reasons I read this book, but this would have been sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, read a book by Anne Rice called Interview with the Vampire and found that she was an incredibly gifted author. There are authors that are good authors, and they're good authors in a mechanical way, and then there are those that have this incredible gift. Edgar Allan Poe, I think, was, one, was another one, where you read them and they touch you and they make you feel something. Well, the problem was, okay, this is a book about vampires, and I, I start reading and I start feeling a lot of anger. And, okay, well, there's one character that annoys me because he's just a wimp, you know. But that doesn't explain why I'm getting so mad. And then something happens, and to fully appreciate this, you have to know that I love books. It's almost impossible for me to get rid of a book. Ask David. He's the one that has to move them. <laughs> I'm very nice to my books, okay. So this is very uncharacteristic. I'm reading this book, and I'm getting angrier and angrier. And I throw the book across the room saying something along the lines of, Oh, Louie, quit whining. That's the character I didn't like. Um, later in the movie, the Tom Cruise character says almost exactly the same thing, but they didn't get it from me. But I wondered why all this rage to the point where I would throw the book, which is like blasphemy for me, when there wasn't something going on that would make me that mad, you know? Well, okay. So I just decided I obviously can't read this book, so I put it down. And then a couple of years later, she wrote another book, The Vampire Lestat, and that's not the one. Um, and the, the, that character, Lestat, no, go back, go back, go back, go back. Um, Lestat was a character I liked. I identified with that character. If you knew the story of my childhood and adolescence, it was that vampire. So I loved him. So I thought, okay, I can read this book. Louis won't be in it. I won't be upset. I start reading, and again, I start feeling all this anger. So I had to put the book down. Well, then I read a little bit about Anne Rice's life. And she lost her mom when she was 15. She was also named Howard. Now, who would name a little girl Howard? I'm thinking I would have anger issues if I was named <laughs> Howard. Dead mom or no dead mom. But anyway, okay. And she wrote, the story, she wrote a short story interview with the vampire. 
And then her little girl was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of four and suffered for two years and died at the age of six. And right after she died was when Anne Rice sat down and turned that short story into the book in a matter of just weeks. And she poured into that all of her anger and rage and pain over the injustice of what had happened to her little girl. And that's why it's a story about good, evil, death, life, blood, vampires. That's why. And so what I was picking up on was all of her anger. And I, I'm not saying that the, the books, the, the series of books she wrote on vampires were a good thing, but I honestly can't judge her because I got to see my little girl grow up, and she didn't. And so I kind of understand that she also had a drinking problem at that time. But the point is that even though the story wasn't about anger, what was coming in is what was coming out of me. Just like when I hear certain songs, that's what comes out. And that's important in looking at what we let into our lives. So what I started doing when I read about Ayn Rice, I said, Lord, you gave this woman this gift. Every good gift comes from you. And she has suffered so much. Lord, heal her to the point where she can write for you. Because that's why you created this talent, was for you and your kingdom. And I prayed that off and on whenever I thought of her or her name came up, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And then in 2005 was when she came out with the book um, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt, which is about the um, childhood and adolescence of Jesus, obviously a fictional account of it. Very good book, again, using all of that talent. And she also made a public declaration. And you have to understand, this is after like a dozen books on vampires and almost pornographic stuff, you know, really dark stuff and a huge following around the world. She declared that she had gone back to her Catholic roots and that from now on she would only write for the Lord. And I don't think that was a count of my prayers. I think God inspired a lot of people to pray for her, you know, um, and then brought her to that point where she could do that now. That's transformation, okay? And that's transformation into what God created her for, I believe. So today we're looking at the transformation God's trying to work in us, and it would help to know what the end goal is. And God says that he does, in fact, have a goal for us. In Jeremiah 29:11. this is out of the Amplified, he says, For I know the thoughts and plans that I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts and plans for welfare and peace and not for evil, to give you hope in your final outcome. Um, other translations we might, you might be more familiar with say, um, plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. I like this explanation of it because it's hope in your final outcome. You started as something that's not what you will be at the end. And the end, of course, is a new beginning into the rest of eternity. And that, that process of transformation, you know, caterpillars are kind of cute. And butterflies are beautiful. But that in-between stage, that cocoon thing is creepy. Okay. <laughs> And, and the same thing with the, with the birds. I don't know if you've ever seen baby birds. I mean, eggs are kind of cool. Birds are cool. But baby birds are ugly, and they can't sing at all, man. They squawk. And I think that the time that we're here on Earth is our kind of squawky baby bird period. I, I honestly don't think we will fully reach our end result until we're in heaven, but we can be getting closer. Just, just so you can have a little more patience with me. Um, <clears throat> 
Okay, so we're going to look at what the Bible says, and, and when it talks about good, um, the Greek word is agathos, useful, good, pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy, excellent, distinguished, upright, honorable, get the drift, that's what goes into the word good. So some of the things we need to do so that we can do our transformation, let's start with our eyes. Our eyes should focus on what is good. Luke 11:34 says the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. What's coming into you? Um, and I've got about 12 other scriptures, but I want you to read them with me, if you would, partly so you can participate, but also so we can make declaration about these things. The next thing we need to work on is our minds. Our minds should focus on what is good. So if you'll read with me um, 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And Romans 12, 9 through 10. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And then I mentioned that whatever you say, you also hear. So our mouths, our mouths should focus on speaking good things. Matthew 12, starting in 35. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's heavy, huh? Okay, First Peter three ten and 11. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Then Proverbs 18, 20 and 21, and this is out of the message paraphrase. Words satisfy the mind as much as fruit does the stomach. Good talk is as gratifying as a good harvest. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. So I get to choose what I'm handing people, you know. I'm either handing them poison or I'm handing them something nutritious when I talk. And, and this, is, this is good stuff to meditate on, which is why you have the list of scriptures. I realize we're kind of running through them. Okay, so our lives. Our lives should focus on doing good. Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Romans 12:17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And the only way these things are possible is if we continually focus on God in his goodness. That's the only way. Because we're constantly bombarded with all the bad stuff and everybody's opinions about all the stuff. And, and you focus on his goodness through Bible study, through listening to teaching and listening to music that tells you about his goodness, through meditating on that, and 
by remembering his promises and what he's already done for you. That's how we stay focused on that. And that's something that there's another scripture that talks about keeping, taking every thought captive. And I picture myself with a lasso. And when my brain starts going off, I take that lasso out and I bring that thought back and I focus again on what God says about the situation or the person or what have you. Um, okay, last, last set of scriptures, our hearts. Our hearts must focus on God's goodness. Uh, Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I think we look forward to the goodness of the Lord in heaven. We must believe we're going to see it here. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's the only one that isn't changing. He's not changing because there are dimensions in God. It's not even like he exists in different dimensions. There are dimensions in God that we can't even imagine. So that it goes beyond what we could comprehend. He doesn't need to change. Um, John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So the way I see it, our culture needs an intervention. And there is a show that, that is good for me to watch called Intervention. Um, it's, it's on A&E, and if you haven't seen it, basically it's like a documentary. You don't really have a narrator or anything. They have some text, but that's about it. And they'll show a person who is headed towards death pretty soon usually, either because of alcohol abuse or drug abuse or an eating disorder or a sexual addiction, some type of addictive behavior. And they, they show that person talking. They show clips of their parents or siblings or friends or husband or wife or children, people close to them, talking about them and, and the change in them. And then you see the family and friends get together with a counselor who coaches them on how to do an intervention. And basically what they're going to tell this person is, I love you, but you are killing yourself. And I'm not going to help you kill yourself. So unless you take the help we're offering you today, I will have nothing more to do with you. I'm not going to answer your calls. I'm not going to let you in my house. You can't live with me. I won't help you out. If you're starving, I'm not going to feed you because that would be helping you to kill yourself, and I love you too much to do that, which is harsh. And that's hard for people to do with a person they love, but they've all come to the point where they realize this is where they're headed. And then they bring the person in, and surprise, here's, <laughs> here's your life, um, your friends and your family. And for those who accept the help, which is going away to a rehab center, um, after a few months, they interview them again. And honestly, when you first see them in the mess that they're in, it would be easy to think that is a waste of a human life. They've thrown away everything God gave them. They're going to die, and honestly, it's no big loss. That's the natural reaction. Then when you see them after a few months, you realize, wait a minute, there's a human being in there. All along, under the drugs or the alcohol or whatever, there was a human being that had certain talents and gifts that God created for a purpose, that had hopes and dreams, and somewhere along the way, they couldn't handle the pain or whatever. They got off track. But that is still a human being worth saving. And it's good for me to watch the show because it restores my hope that no matter how badly someone's behaving, there's still hope. As long as they're alive, there's still hope, and I can still keep praying or what have you. you know. Um, 
Well, we can't stick millions of people into one room and do an intervention with them. So we're going to have to be a walking intervention. That's what I have to be. In my home, where I work, wherever I am, I need to get rid of all the things that keep me from seeing God's goodness and keep me from displaying God's goodness. And I need to encourage those around me. I need to be that walking intervention because we're not going to get all of the culture into one room to say, hey, look how negative you are. Um, If I pulled out some test results right now and told one of you, hey, while we've been here, somebody's been testing your house and there's this dangerous gas. There's a gas leak in your house and it's getting worse and worse and eventually it's going to kill you. It's going to kill your kids. You're just not going to wake up one day. Would you just say, okay, well, that was an interesting service. Go home and keep doing everything the same. Or would you look for that leak and fix it? Or open all the windows, get your stuff and get out? (laughs) You know, I mean, I would think you would do something differently. And usually when we come to church and we hear a message, it's either about here's where the gas is that is killing you or here's where the fresh air is, one or the other. And it's up to us to take steps towards that. And the negativity thing kills us at least spiritually. It kills relationships. Um, For me, that negative stuff in my family and the bullying and the abuse, by the time I was 10, I was suicidal. It almost killed me for real. It definitely almost killed my destiny. So this is serious. But the good news is that God has a plan. And God has another place where he wants us to be. And so, as Melissa mentioned, beginning in January, we're going to start working together as a church to carry out this cultural intervention in our own spheres of influence. And and doing that, like I said, by identifying what is it that keeps me from um, really appreciating God's goodness or displaying God's goodness. And we're not just going to identify those things, we're going to fast from them. So, for example, if there's a show that makes me be extra critical, then I'm not going to watch that show on Tuesday nights or whatever it is. And I'm going to do that for 40 days. And during that time, I'm also going to pray. So I might take that Tuesday night and spend it praying. Or I might spend it taking in things that make me more positive. Okay. Each of you can decide for yourselves, and that's why we're talking about it now, so you have two weeks to pray and seek God and figure out what is it in my life or what is it in our household that needs to go. And, you know, after the 40 days, you might decide to get rid of it altogether or you might not. I don't know. Or it might be cussing. Or it might be criticizing people, you know. Or or it might be jumping to conclusions about that guy along the side of the road and why he doesn't have a job, you know. Instead of thinking about all the bad reasons why he doesn't have a job, we might start thinking that, you know, when I was a kid and I was playing in a playground with no cares in the world, he was in another country, seeing and doing things that no human being should see or do, and that messed him up. And that's why he he doesn't have a job today, because he's messed up, because that's the price he paid for my freedom. You know, maybe I could think that instead of the things that I might naturally think, you know. Um, so you can participate to whatever extent you want. We're not going to tell you what to do or where to do it. We're only asking that you do participate in some way. And this will be like the corporate fast of earlier this year. And so for those who weren't here, I'm very quickly going to run through some basic principles about fasting so we're all on the same page. Um, 
first Christian fasting, what is it? And in the Bible, you usually hear fasting as abstaining or not participating in certain kinds of food or maybe not eating for a certain length of time. And it can be that, but it could be almost any activity. And, and the passage up there from 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that it's all right for a married couple to abstain from sexual relations for a period of time in order to fast and pray. So if you can abstain from that, you can abstain from watching TV or whatever it is. Okay. Um, so it could be an activity or it could be food. And then when we say prayer, when we say fasting, it's prayer and fasting. You can pray without fasting. You can fast without prayer, and you'll get some benefits, but when you combine them, you get much, much more benefits. And we had all sorts of testimonies um, earlier this year about that. So whenever we talk about fasting, remember, there's, you're supposed to have prayer in there, even if we don't say the word. Um, and last, it's not a work. Work is something I do when somebody has to pay me. When I do my work, my boss has to pay me. When I fast or when I give to the needy, or whatever it is I'm doing is my worship to God. He doesn't owe me a thing. Now, given his nature, it's likely that he'll bless me in some way. Okay, and we had lots of blessings from our last fast. But we're not doing this to manipulate God into doing something for us. Now, he might, and we might have great breakthrough in some area of our lives, like some of us did this year, but that's not why we're doing it. Okay, just want to make that clear so it doesn't sound like we're trying to bargain with God here. And so our job as we teach is to equip you, to give you the tools you need to live out this Christian life and work out this transformation. And so there's two resources we're going to give you. Um, you can have one of them today, and then the other one will be ready soon. And the one we're going to have ready soon is a book like what we did earlier this year that had scriptures for each day and a devotional and a place to maybe journal some of what you were um, understanding and a little explanation on fasting and we'll keep encouraging each other whenever we meet together including our community groups the thing we do have ready today is our transformation jars and I wanted Claire to explain that so you wouldn't just take the jar home and say okay and now what and she's also going to talk about a party all right, and um, on your way out, we have these jars on the table, and um, we're providing one per family. But some families may want to have more than one because, you know, you've got grown-up people, several grown-up people in your home. If that's the case, then just donate $2 for any extra ones, okay? Um, anyway, um, these transformation jars um, are a place for us, whatever you decide before you and God in prayer in these next two weeks that you want to fast from. You know, Marianne mentioned gossiping. Or the she's mentioned several already. Through reading the scriptures, I recommend you read through those scriptures. They're on that paper, and allow the Holy Spirit to just point out what's the one for you, or two, or three, or whatever. And then you predetermine what you're going to put in this jar for every single time you oops break your fast. Okay. So mine is you know just saying outright something negative about anything, and I do that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put a dollar in this jar every single time I do that, okay? And so at the end of our fast on February the 10th, we're going to bring these jars back with the money in here, and we're going to have a huge, wonderful party eating together and hearing testimonies of what God has done in our lives. And we're going to put all that money toward reducing our church debt, removing the negative burden over our church. Isn't that awesome? 
So this is no have to, but encouragement, and I think that you're going to see some benefit um, in not only the natural, but definitely in the spiritual. Yeah, party February 10th is when we break the fast, and I'm working on it. Um, I, I want us to eat together, and I want us to have time for testimony, so I'm working on um, a banquet area place for us. So that's all I can say. I'm still working on it. So, see, hopefully you won't have hardly anything in the jar because you'll do so good on your fast that you'll come in with, like, you know, a buck. Um, <laughs> But if you don't, hey, that'll help the church that. So either way, you know, so it's a win-win. <laughs> um, so I'm going to close with a story, since I told you that's part of my thing is telling stories. So this is something I happened to see on the news on Friday. You might have heard about it. Happened at a Starbucks in Florida where a man was going through the drive-thru, and the guy behind, the car behind him was going nuts, just yelling at him and hand motions and all that. And, you know, the natural thing to do, I would think, would be to say, what's wrong with that freak? You know, I'm sorry it's taking so long, you know, and complain to the cashier and then go to work and tell everybody about it, about how rotten people are and how this guy was going nuts behind me at Starbucks and spread the Christmas stress. <laughs> yes. But that's not what this guy did. Instead, I guess he figured the man behind him was having a hard day, so he, he offered to pay. He told the cashier, here's the money for my coffee, and I'm going to pay for the guy behind me. And that continued to happen. I don't know if everybody who went through the line did it, but it almost sounds like it. Like all day long, people kept paying for the person in back of them. So somebody would get to the window, and they'd say, oh, you don't have to pay. The, guy, the person in front of you paid for you. That's cool. And then everybody got to go to work and say, hey, guess what happened to me today? You know, and it finally made the national news. You know? From one guy deciding not to pay evil for evil, you had this whole day where all these people had a great day. You know? Um, yeah. Now, the only thing that made me sad is that it wasn't a Christian. It was, it was someone who's into the martial arts and talking about how Zen had helped him understand this. And Jesus came up with this long before Buddha and, and, you know, God came up with it long before even that. So it would be nice if we were that kind of person and we had that kind of influence on our culture and could point people to where all that goodness comes from, you know. Um, and so there's no telling how this fast is going to influence you or your family or more than that. I mean, this guy had no clue it was going to be on the national news, all right, uh, and encouraging me, and I'm not in Florida and I don't drink coffee, you know. Um, so think of this as an investment in the kingdom, not just the money towards the church, that, although that's good, but, you know, you, you don't have to wait for, for the fast to, to help clear that up. <laughs> um, but when we do good things, when we refrain from bad things, there, and we do that as a sacrifice for God, there's no telling what the rate of return is going to be. There's no telling what kind of interest rate God's going to put on that until you do it. So I want to encourage you to participate in this and wait and see what God does with it. So with that, one of the good things we do every week is that we offer prayer. So if you think you need prayer in this whole fasting area or negativity area, or if there's just something else that's weighing you down and you want prayer for that, I'm going to encourage people who are trained in prayer, including all the community group captain-type people, to come up to the front. And prayer does work. So come get you some. See you next week. <laughs>